friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer and saxophonist Paul Newman. Paul is a prolific composer who places his chosen instruments, the tenor and soprano saxophones, at the center of his compositional process. He has been an anchor for the free improvisation scene in Toronto for decades, organizing and performing in countless concerts. A chat with the real hero of creative music, Paul Newman, coming up next on Northern Static. Welcome to episode 10 of the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session, where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Today, I talk to Paul Newman, the quiet wizard behind the curtain of Toronto's improvised music scene. Paul is a tireless composer and organizer of concerts. He and I worked together for several years as part of Somewhere There, an artist collective that ran a venue and later a festival of improvised music in Toronto. Paul was the anchor for that group, quietly doing all sorts of work behind the scenes that made so much great live music happen. He's a regular in a number of larger bands, including the Starfires, the Woodshoppers, and the Rhinoceros Saxophone Quartet, but he focuses his composing efforts on smaller groups, like duos, solos, and trios. I wanted to speak to Paul for two main reasons. First, his music blurs the line between composition and improvisation in a compelling way, and I was curious to learn how he knits these two things together. Second, his instrument, the saxophone, has always seemed to me to be the primary source of his compositional materials. Watching him play, it's clear that Paul is engaged in a deep physical and sonic relationship with the saxophone as a sound-generating object, so I was curious to learn how his instrument informs his compositional decision-making. Paul's a pretty quiet guy who prefers to work in the background of things rather than be the center of attention, yet he has written a lot of solo music that puts him in just such a position. Given this tension, I'm grateful that Paul agreed to sit down and talk with me, and that he was so willing to take a detailed dive into his composing process. Paul's dedication to his craft and to the creative music community is a constant source of inspiration for me. He's always out there, making good things happen for other people, and he's always working on new music. He has been the heart and soul of Toronto's improvised music scene for a very long time, and all us musicians and listeners in that scene owe him a great debt. Long may he continue to hold the rest of us up with his generous and relentlessly curious spirit. As a quick disclaimer, I had some serious issues with my recording equipment while making this episode with Paul, so my apologies in advance that it doesn't sound quite as good as it should, but hopefully we can all hear through that and still hear what Paul has to say. To kick things off, as we like to do here on Northern Static, we'll hear a little bit of Paul's music and then get into our discussion. Here's a piece for Paul's saxophone duo with alto saxophonist Karen Ng called Strange Customs Part 3. Thank you. 
saxophonist, composer, all-around organizer of fantastic things. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Pete. We've known each other for a number of years. Long, 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 long time. I don't know how long. Let's not count those rings. <laughs> and I, we've worked together in somewhere there, organizing festivals and concerts and many other things. And you're a true warrior for uh, creative and original music. So it's great to have you on the show to talk about um, your many compositional projects. I primarily know your solo saxophone music, which you've been doing for a long time, and some of your other, other duo music. And hopefully we'll get into some of that. So when did you start composing, and what was it about music that drew you into wanting to work with sound? I started writing music right after I finished university in 1987. And, so you didn't write while you were in university? Uh, no. No, I never took any composition courses in university. I wanted to write music while I was going to university, but I figured probably I wouldn't be able to do it. So I was afraid to take courses and not actually be able to, to do the writing. So as soon as uh, university actually ended, I house sat and I did nothing for about four months except write music until I was out of money and I had to get a job. <laughs> I, I just wrote music for about four months after university and that's practically all I did. So what was it about, I guess, the school environment that prevented you from trying or the being out of school that opened it up? Well, I can't blame school for it, really. I mean, it was just that I figured I wouldn't be able to write music if I tried, so I didn't bothered doing that, but I wanted to. So after school was over, then, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I can't blame school for it. <laughs> okay. Just me. But when you finished school, it was, you were more open time or whatever to... I guess so, yeah. What motivated you to actually then do it if you were worried about it before, I guess? Yeah, well, I've always wanted to write music. The only reason I didn't write music going to school, I suppose I was busy with other things at school. And if I'd taken the composition courses, then, then I figured I wouldn't be able to write anything. Right. So if you'd always wanted to write music, what were some of your inspirations or influences or music that you heard that made you want to write music? Mm. I think uh, for grade nine, I managed to take music classes at school. I don't know why I wasn't able to take music in grade eight, but I know they had grade nine beginner music class and I took that. And so then I played in school band. And, uh, oh, saxophone right away? You started on saxophone? Uh, clarinet first. Uh-huh. And then... It's the gateway drug. The gateway drug. Gateway yeah. horn. Yeah, I mean, I started in clarinet, and then you played saxophone too, you'd be in the stage band as well. You'd mm-hmm. be in two bands. So for grade 11, I think I started playing saxophone as well. Did the jazz band excite you more than the concert band, or was it... The... I don't think so necessarily. No, I think they were all pretty exciting. For me, any, any kind of playing was, was pretty exciting. So, uh, no, I don't think I had any preference between concert band and, and stage band. Yeah, we've been wondering, without doing any research to find the answer to the question, if they're still called stage bands or now if they're called jazz bands in high schools. Maybe you know. Mm, I don't know that. Because when I was growing up, they were called stage bands. Right. And my dad was a stage band teacher. You know, I think I think from, from teaching kids who are in high school now, I think they're called jazz bands now. Okay. Well... I'm going to continue to not do any actual research and ask anybody who will know. Right. It's more fun to just sort of informally poll. I don't okay. think I'm, I, I know any kids that are in stage bands. Okay. All jazz bands. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. So was there music you were hearing at this time that you thought, you know, I want to write music that sounds like that? I don't remember anything like that as far back as that. I do clearly remember the first time hearing John Coltrane. I think probably that 
fat-headed, a huge influence on me and wanting to be a musician. The first time I heard John Coltrane was in music history class, the first year at university. Oh, wow. Where, or at least I may have heard him before, but it was that live recording of that quartet of Coltrane. Jimmy Garrison and Pointiner and uh, Alvin Jones. It was a live recording in Stockholm, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So not one of the big records. Yeah, it was probably a bootleg recording of that show. And, you know, they played a minor blues that went on for half an hour, and there was this long stretch where it was just Alvin Jones and John Coltrane. Right. And I was going crazy listening to it. Also, probably a little bit later, but around the same time, I remember hearing Alvin Berg for the first time, which would be the opera Lulu. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing um, mostly Schoenberg opera. It's called the Psychodrama in one. In one. Oh, Pierre Lenaire. No, it's not, not that Pierre Lenaire. It's a version. First time, and I remember uh, Quartet Primitive Time, right. Messina, mm-hmm. and uh, Rite of Spring. Yeah, those are things that really immediately come to mind as things that really were exciting. 20th century stuff. Yeah, and, and, and sort of atonality. And hearing Steve Lacey Sextet, I remember the first time I heard them, I heard them at Clinton's Tavern. Jackson. Right. That quartet with Marilyn Pistol and Jerry Hemingway and mm-hmm. Mark Pistol. of things that made me lose my mind when I was in my 20s. So that's all pretty dense and harmonically adventurous music. Yeah. The composer that got me interested in not being dense was Morton Feldman. And that was right. much later. <laughs> yeah. Kind of the opposite of dense. Mm-hmm. And Steve Reich and the, the felt glass operas. And they're dense in a way, but it's not very harmonically dense. Right. That was stuff that I heard much later. 
hearing of your compositions. So it seems that there's a very strong connection between your instrument and the composing. Yeah, I think so. That uh, until recently, I always wrote with the instrument in my hand. It's only been the last few years that I did some writing without having an instrument. Were you writing music not for the saxophone? I wrote a lot of music for bass and drums and saxophone and bass and drums and two wind instruments, but I wasn't really writing so much specifically for instruments. It was more leachy kind of things. Mm-hmm. The things that I wrote that are more strictly composed and for certain instruments have mostly been for wind instruments. I've never written anything. I've written some for guitar, but never written anything for piano. And lately it has been duo music for tenor saxophone and trombone to play with Heather Sommer. And, uh, and I would like to work my way up to larger ensembles, but I still got in my mind writing for wind instruments. So how would you characterize the relationship then between your approach to composition or the language you've developed and the instrument? Because I was writing so much with an instrument in my hand, it often was music that fit the saxophone well. And it wasn't until I tried deliberately not to write with the instrument in my hand that then I was writing things that were harder to learn because they weren't so idiomatic to the saxophone. So I think it was a good thing for me to get away from writing with the instrument in mind because then I had to learn to do new things. Did you substitute the saxophone, like using the piano or another instrument? No, I was just writing without relating to an instrument. Because you've told me in the past about certain pieces have very specific physical movements that you make on the saxophone to, to create the music. In the solo music, there's a lot of things where I'm allowed to do certain physical movements. Like I'm allowed to move one finger or two fingers and move them as little as possible. And so then I'm trying to get as wide a range of sounds as possible from this really limited movement and find out all the variations that can be had of that. On the new solo record, there's a lot of things like that. The whole first section, which is quite long, it's pretty well all done with my right index finger and left ring finger. <laughs> okay. And at times, I let myself use the right pinky finger as well. But I was trying to use very small movements, keeping uh, that I could let the keys go all the way up, or sometimes move up just a tiny amount. But I was trying to stay in just that area, just moving two fingers. And was that about the physical discipline for you or the idea of detailed exploration of a very limited set of sounds. Well, I think it has more to do with a physical limitation than than a sound limitation. I was thinking a lot uh, in writing those kind of pieces with music being being a physical process and that I limited myself (coughs) to this very specific, very small movement. Then uh, I could surprise myself with what sounds would happen, because I wasn't really sure what sounds would happen if I did this mm. certain thing. By small changes in that movement, that the sounds could change quite a lot. If I did that in a certain way and did it long enough, things would happen I, I hadn't really expected. So I wasn't really aiming for a certain sound. It was more of a certain process that I would do physically that would, would make all these different sounds. It was indeterminate in a way. Mm-hmm. You're surprising yourself with the sounds. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Even though it's just yeah. you playing. Right. I've been reading a John Cage book called Silence, and he talks a lot about 
being intentional and non-intentional and sometimes at the same time i think in a way like just moving two fingers is really really intentional but then i'm not sure what sound it's going to make especially if i keep going long enough and try to minimize the movement then uh it'll make sounds that i haven't expected which means that I, I'm getting it non, non-intentional in a really intentional way. And you notate these, yes? Uh, some of them, I've, I've had a hard time trying to figure out how to notate a lot of them. Some of them are easily notated. There's certainly at least sections in some compositions that are pretty notatable. I can write down the rhythms, and like some of it is really specific. A lot of it, lately, uh, I've been notating it by writing uh, diagrams of things that I use. Oh, wow, like and saxophone tablature. Exactly, yeah. There'll be a note on it saying, well, here's the fingering, and these two fingers can move, and move them in different orders and different amplitudes, that sort of thing. So there's a lot in recent solo music that I've written, and even in some of that in the saxophone quartet. See, there's diagrams and fingerings and what fingers you're allowed to move and which ones have to stay. Maybe we could listen to some of that. Let's listen to part one of Full Circle. Full Circle, part one, uh, music for solo tenor saxophone. Here it goes.
Wow. What can you tell us about your process and the materials you, you use there? Full circle is based on a 12-stone row, and I work my way very slowly through that 12-stone row. And I play each note, and the row followed by a multiphonic, which strongly contains that note. And I've worked out what fingerings will work for that, but they often sound quite different depending on how much I open certain keys or what the gap is between the saxophone, the key, if I got it up only a little bit or a lot, and uh, the angle of the airstream going into the mouthpiece. So it, it doesn't always make the same sounds. So I wouldn't exactly call it improvised, but there are surprises in it for me. So maybe it's not improvised, but you are having to respond to things that maybe weren't sounding as you... That's right, yeah, I have to, to respond to how it comes out, and I don't know exactly how that's going to be. That particular version of it was recorded at Doug Tealy's place, which is the church, and it hasn't been changed very much since my was in church. So I was recording in the, in the large open area of the church, and which was great for that particular... That particular piece worked really well in there. Right. So the space is important for that kind of thing. Right. And it sounds like you're talking very detailed and minute movements of the fingers on the horn. Uh, well, there's a very specific fingering that goes along with each sound. But the fingerings involved, making the sound involves some of the key. They're not all the way open or all the way closed. And so the sound changes in relation to the sound will be very different according to how much that I open or close each key, which I can't do it the same way every time. Right. Yeah. And that one you notated using this? Uh, That's right. Yeah, there is, there is a notated version of that. Yeah. And what role does the notation play? Are you notating it in such a way that somebody else could play the piece? Hopefully, yeah. Yeah? yeah. When I'm trying to figure out how to notate them, I'm hoping that someone else will play them. So I'm trying to find a way to notate them in a way that somebody else can look at it. And so that's that's what I would do. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's important to how what uh, the role notation can play. For some music, it's going to be merely a kind of memory aid for the person playing it if you're not imagining specifically somebody else playing it. Yeah, I didn't write anything down while I was learning the piece. After it was a complete piece, then I started thinking, well, how would I write that down? So when you say learning it, what are you learning from? Is it something you've just internalized? Yeah. I decided what the child's own row was going to be, and I had written that down. So that that was pre-existed. After I had written the child's own row down, I learned that just from playing it uh, over and over again, and I memorized all four versions to play it. So you mean retrograde and Me, yeah, inversion. inversion and retrograde inversion. I also learned them in all transitions too, though there's very little use of different transpositions of the row on that piece. Right at the end, there's a bit. How did you generate the row? Uh, I just went with uh, with a row that sounded good, uh, intuitive to me. Yeah, like I didn't decide any mathematical thing that you know, have a certain interval followed by a certain interval. Like I did it by deciding what I like through sound. Although I do find that originally I, I didn't, I, all I cared about was what it would sound like. But I do find now that if I'm coming up with a trout swim row and there's a, a major triad in it or something like that, then I tend to change it to right. to get rid of obvious things like that. So do you often work with 12-tone rows? Quite a bit, yeah. I think most of the time. Although on this particular record, there's two pieces, and one of them is 12-tone and the other isn't. So, yeah. 
and it's a longer piece that isn't 12 tone. So that record has 12 tone minority in it. But I think more often than not, it's tone rows. But what is it about tone rows that appeals to you? Tone row, improvising on tone rows is something that just really works well for my brain in terms of organizing my thoughts. Uh, I don't think many people would say that. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know that you've been 12 tone improvising for quite a long time. 2003 okay. was when I started using that method. Yeah, because you did a lot of that in Open House here. That's right, yeah. Hotel, yeah. And now I can't remember the title. It was an Open House space for the band of Dave Fish, uh, Michael Herring, Rob Mosher, and, and myself. And did you come to the 12-tone idea through hearing Bayburn and Schoenberg and all that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All that business? I mean, I don't know how else one would come across that. Yeah, I think Alpenberg was the, the first composer using 12 tones that I listened to a lot. I think I listened to Berg before Schoenberg. Oh. But those new Viennese school people, I discovered them all around the same time and listened to a lot. Right. So maybe um, do you have a larger ensemble duo or, or something well, like that? You'd like to do the or a trio even. Let's do part three. This is part three of When I Die, Who Will Be There to Count the Rings? All right. This is When I Die, Who Will Be There to Count the Rings? Part three. And what's the ensemble? It's uh, me and Heather Sommer, the last track. Tenor saxophone and trombone. The uh, title comes from a poem by Diane Korczynski. It was a poet from Winnipeg. And the original version of this was background music to play while she recited the poem, When I Die, Who Will Be There to Count the Rings. Oh, wow. We never managed to line up our schedules to perform the original piece. And she lives in Hawaii now, so well. uh, <laughs> maybe well. So I expanded the original piece. I expanded it into Right. Okay. Here it goes. Thank you. 
happens at the start is the forerunner of everything that I've been interested in the last few years and that we're playing a different length. Heather's playing in 4-4 four, four, and I'm playing 7-8. Is it the same row? We're playing the same row, it's just that I'm it's playing one note, one note less of it than Heather is. And so we play till it comes around a couple of times. And the offset thing, that's been in everything that I've done pretty well since then. So like the thing's resolving at different times? Yeah. That's kind of an early version of it, and that 
we're playing rhythmically the same thing. So if one longer and one shorter. But I've been interested in various different ways of doing that. And sometimes playing things that are very different, that are rhythmically very different from each other. They interact in different ways. I've lived here for the last two years, a little more than two years now, and there's a bunch of mockingbirds that live in the park right underneath my bedroom window. Mm. And so I hear those mockingbirds singing all the time. And as soon as I started listening to mockingbirds, I wanted to make a sound like that. I'd be getting closer and closer to the flock of mockingbird sound by using unequal things that are very different, like writing two very different melodies with different rhythms, although using the same twice on them. Not always the same version of the room. And some of them take quite a long time to come around. That sometimes the offset is quite large, and even in the duo recordings, there are some that overlap in different ways throughout 10 minutes and then come around. Because they're not the same things, we keep playing until we land on the same note at the end or something right. like that. Um, but that's getting closer to the sound of uh, Mockingbird. There's not, they, they have an enormous vocabulary. Rhythmically, it's very random. Are you going after emulating the, the pitches or the rhythms primarily? It's the rhythm primarily, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been trying to transcribe Mockingbirds and play yeah. their and melodies. Going all messy on it? Yeah, I haven't been going all messy on that, although I do love what's up with Sati. That's not really what the thing that gets me about the Mockingbirds is the rhythms, I think. Oh, wow. Those are mind-boggling rhythms, and I want to find that. So this piece is also different because it has some improvising. Yeah, that's more that there's straight up improvising on the Charles Tonero in that the end is composed, but we play a composed thing and then we improvise and then we play another composed thing. So is the improvising based on attending to the tone row or is it? Yeah, though we're allowed to use uh, all four versions of row. In my Charles Tonero universe, you can sit on a smaller part of the row. Like you can play four notes over and over again. Right. What is the um, the role of the listener in your process here? Because clearly there's a bunch of different systems at play. Is it important to you that the listener know anything about that? I don't think so, though I really was affected a lot by that Steve Wright essay called Music is a Gradual Process, when he talks about how he really wants the listener to be able to hear what the process is. It's important to him that the process be clearly audible. I really like that idea, but I just want a certain sound. I'm not sure if it really matters to me if the way I got it is clearly heard in the music. Right, and I think making the process clearly audible is more challenging in the 12-tone language you're, it may be. you're, you're working in. I think especially, too, if I'm trying to get the sound of a flock of, of mockingbirds, then I think that I have to abandon any hope of having a process audible to the listener because the whole thing about mockingbirds is their rhythmic universe is so varied that I don't hear any repeating patterns. There's all these rhythms that happen, and you can never tell what's going to happen next. Like I can't really make an infinitely variable process that's going to... Well, I suppose I can in the sense that if I make it hard enough, someone's going to make a mistake. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then you can't predict what's going to happen. Right. Which is good, but assuming that we don't make a mistake, it's going to repeat sometime. But... If you make the offset long enough, then it can take quite a long time to come around to the point that you get the sound of an infinitely variable system. And that means that the listener can't hear the process because it's taking too long to Mm -hmm. come around. What would you like the listener to attend to in a piece like we just heard? I'm interested more in rhythm than the harmony or melody these days. 
but also in the texture of the piece. Uh, more and more, I want a lot of silence. So I want the listeners to listen to the silence. That's the John Cage thing. You hear silence, but it's never completely silent. So what is the relationship in the piece we just heard between the composing and the improvising? Is there a particular reason for yeah. those improvising sections? And that piece, the improvising sections happen in different parts of the piece that are very different in the texture. So we're trying to maintain the texture of the composition at that point while improvising. So there's a very spacious part in the middle and a very dense part. Right. Yeah. So the idea is you improvise in a spacious way and improvise in a yeah. dense way? But on the same row. And there's also in that piece, there's a solo improvised section for each of us. I know you spend a lot of time recording. Is there a difference for you between how you think about the live rendering of a piece that you might do in concert and recorded? No, I don't think there's any difference in the Devo pieces. But I'll stop... And I'll move the reed around a little bit on the mouthpiece because I know it's going to cause certain overtones to come out more at one time or another, which I couldn't do live. I mean, live, I have to use the same setup. But I'm not averse to changing the setup a little bit to make certain overtones be more prominent at one time when I'm recording solo piece. As in, like, between takes, you'll do a different yeah. take? Or uh, for a, a different piece. If I want more overtones at one time, less overtones to another time, I can put the reed a little further out on the mouthpiece a little bit more in because I know it's going to have that that effect. I don't like to to do any edits, and there aren't any edits on on the solar. So you're going for complete takes of your yeah. It's so in that that respect, it's like an actual performance that each track on the record is not stitched together. So I leave the mistakes in. Right. And what do you think is the role, I guess, of music in the world or, or sort of, you see, political or social responsibility for composers? If you're a musician, you have uh, your, your duty is to make the sounds you hear in your head. And that's what we're called to do as musicians, to make those sounds then, that I, I hope that it does good in the world. I do want music to do good in the world. And I'm hoping that if we do, in a sincere way, then the music that the universe gives us to do, that some good will come out of it. I don't know what specific good can come out of playing music. But, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that it does something good. Well, it sounds good when you do it. I mean, we're doing what we're supposed to do in the universe, so uh, hopefully if we do what we're supposed to do, then the universe will be a good place. All right. Well, that's as good a place to end off as I can imagine. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for playing the music for us. Where can people find your music? I have a Bandcamp page, paulnewman1 at bandcamp.com. Does the other Paul Newman have a Bandcamp uh, page? There are a number of Paul Newmans on, oh, on Bandcamp. Okay. Uh, I'm Paul Newman 1, but uh, there's more than just two. Okay. <laughs> It's not just Paul Newman and Paul Newman one, but there's somebody else too. So, what do you, do you have a do you have a saladcamp.com uh, uh, you know, salad dressing no. Bandcamp? We can find your music on the Bandcamp. That's right. For streaming or download. Yeah, amazing. Thanks a lot, Paul. All right, thanks, Pete. Thanks for coming over. That's the show, friends. You can find more of Paul's music on his Bandcamp page, which I will link to in the show notes. The content and sound quality of the show are the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. This week, I had editorial and production help from Julian Muya. If you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe. More importantly, tell your friends to have a listen, and maybe rate and review the show on iTunes. 
You can find out more about me on SoundCloud, Bandcamp, or on my website, PeteJohnstonMusic.com. For some reason, I'm not on any other social media platforms, so I'm counting on you modern people out there to help spread the word about the show. Paul's going to play us out now with a piece for solo soprano saxophone called Celebration, which he dedicates to the great drummer, bandleader, and composer Dave Clark. Thanks for listening, and talk to you again soon.